From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Stem cell transplantation is an effective way to treat a number of serious blood disorders, including cancers. We'll have the latest on stem cell transplants and bone marrow donation. Also on the program, head lice can turn a family life upside down. We'll have tips on the best way to manage an infestation. And still, it's the best way to prevent getting a cold or the flu during the winter season. Hand washing, it's not high tech, but how well you do it can make the difference between staying well and getting sick. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Bone marrow transplantation, also known as stem cell transplantation, has come a long way since it was first tried in the early 1900s. Back then, bone marrow cells were given orally by mouth, and that technique didn't work. But after a century of refinement, including overcoming immune system responses that were fought off by the transplanted cells, today, our bone marrow transplants are widely used successfully and treat a variety of cancers and other blood-related diseases and conditions. We wanted to get an update on bone marrow transplantation, including the growing donor network. Here with the latest on bone marrow transplantation is Mayo Clinic pediatric oncologist, Dr. Shaquilla Khan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khan. It's great to have you here. Welcome, Shaquilla. Thank you. Well, as we've been talking, getting ready, tell me the difference between bone marrow and a stem cell transplant. Is, are that the same thing? They actually are, uh, but uh, sometimes people get confused because what we are doing in bone marrow or stem cell transplant is taking stem cell which is not affected by disease and putting it in uh, the patient who has a problem with the stem cell. To give you an example, leukemia. There is a problem in their stem cells which causes the leukemia, so you try to replace it with a normal cell from a donor. So the stem cells are found in bone marrow, cord blood, and peripheral blood. So we have changed transplant phraseology, and we call it stem cell transplant to reflect that it could any of these three could be the source. And when you say peripheral blood, you mean withdrawing blood from your artery or vein like you would for donating blood? Yes, absolutely. That's how it's collected is like you would go for a donation, um, but you get some growth factors before, and then you get the collection for stem cells. What are the most common reasons that people would need a stem cell transplant? Mostly transplants are done for malignant disorders like leukemias, I think are the main ones, lymphomas. But in pediatrics, we are a little different. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of non-malignant disorders, like bone marrow failures, aplastic anemia, immunodeficiency, metabolic disorders. So in pediatrics, it's really a wide range of diseases which can be cured by transplant. So just a reminder for the audience, leukemias and lymphomas are cancers that occur in the bloodstream and in the lymph nodes Mm -hmm. versus bone marrow failures like you discussed in children is when children being so young, their bone marrow is learning and oftentimes 
won't do its job correctly because it's still learning. And so a cell type won't grow to then be circulated through the body. Is that what you're, what you, right. what you there, mean? There are cells in our body which mount, our, you know, make the immune cells and they are defective in children. And, uh, so those are the children who would need a transplant. So you're putting them, you're taking someone else's cells that are there that the child isn't making and putting them in the child's blood for them. Yes. So do you do stem cell transplants differently for adults than you do for children? Not overall. The, uh, you know, the factors we have to consider is that in adults, they are older p- um, patients mm-hmm. and, you know, they have a different approach than pediatrics because we are trying to cure and give them a longer lifespan. So we have to look at a lot of factors. And I think the risks of graft-versus-host disease are related to age. So we don't see that as bad in children as in the adults see it. So Talk a little bit more about graft-versus-host disease. It's actually very unique to stem cell transplant. Okay. And it is because when you're putting normal cells in a recipient who you have made immuno-incompetent, as we call, means that we have wiped the immune system out, the cells from the donor can mount a response on the recipient, and that's why it's called graft-versus-host disease. And so that is, I think, very unique in transplant. And the factors which cause it, our HLA mismatch is the main ones, mm-hmm. so we try to get the best match donor because of that. Is that where the blood cells of the person getting the infusion or treatment and the blood cells of the people who are donating it, their proteins don't match, and you try to get them yes. as close as possible? Right. We call it tissue typing to make it simple, and it's a blood test. And But even now, we can do it from buccal swabs and... Uh, you can type the donor and the recipient to see if they are a good match. So your immediate family members are probably the most likely match for you. Is it your sibling? Is it your mother, your father? Siblings. With every sibling, you have a 25% chance of having a match. And uh, if you, uh, sometimes we have one sibling and they are a perfect match. And sometimes we have eight and none of them are a match. So it's really hard for people to understand, but it's with each sibling, there's only a 25% chance that you'll be a match to your brother or sister. So that's why 75% of our patients don't have a sibling match. And that's where we go to the NMDP, which is National Marrow Donor Program, which is now called Be The Match Organization to get these volunteer donors, type them and match them and you, you know, they kindly donate to our patients. I think it's always fascinating to me as a medical provider that you, you think because you're the mother or the father of the child that they get about half of your genes. You think of them as being your strongest lookalike, right? Especially when they're kind of like a mini-me or your <laughs> mini-husband. Good, bad, or indifferent. Right. you got to take it as it comes. No commentary there. And you think that siblings you know, can be, can appear similar or dissimilar or have more traits of one parent versus the other. And it's always fascinated me how from a genetic standpoint, your sibling is actually genetically the closest related relative to you, not your parent. Absolutely. You, I couldn't have put it better, Don, than what you did. <laughs> you get half from each parent, the uh, half of the genes. So your siblings are the closest match to you. Is and it- if you have an identical twin, they are a perfect match. Sure. When you have to uh, 
go to the donor pool. Is it a better chance of success on that, or do you really want to try to have it be someone that is a, a biological match, that like a sibling? No, I mean, we first go for the family mm-hmm. and we type them. If we don't have a donor, that's the next step is to go for an unrelated transplant, what we call an unrelated donor. Do and, things like and gender and ethnicity um, a factor into that? Yes. If you're a Caucasian, you have an 80% chance of finding a good donor. But if you are an ethnic minority, actually your chances are lower. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Be the Match is focusing on is the ethnic minorities to increase the donor pool there. And is that because Caucasians are more genetically similar to one another and so we just have more odds of finding someone like us? Or is that because Caucasians have more donors in the pool than minorities and we need to have minority patients contribute more? I think the second is the latter, Mm -hmm. that we have a lot more donors and the Caucasian donors in the donor pool. Sometimes I've had, just to let you know, yes, there are common haplotypes But even in Caucasians, there are rare types where you can find a match. So the bigger the donor pool, the better your chances are. That's why we need more people to be the match. Absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a bit. We're talking about bone marrow transplantation and stem cell, we should say, stem cell transplantation with Mayo Clinic pediatric oncologist Dr. Shaquille Khan. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, if you've had a stem cell transplant and that one doesn't work, can you have another one? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in today for Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back with Mayo Clinic pediatric oncologist Dr. Shaquille Khan talking about advances in stem cell transplantation. I know we're so metro using the new proper <laughs> tool right. and term. I'm so proud of us. Okay, Shaquille, now's our chance. Myth or matter of fact? If you've had a stem cell transplant and it doesn't take or work, can you have a second one? Uh, the short answer is yes, but it depends on a lot of circumstances, how far you're out from the first transplant, because if, it, if say, in case of leukemia, you relapse about six, seven months later, you could tr- have another transplant because your body would be able to bear it. But if you relapsed, say, for example, a month later, it's much harder on your own system to go through another process. So what does a patient do if they have an immediate failure of their transplant and you say, okay, for this condition, you need to wait so many months. What does the patient do in that waiting period? Do they get medications? Do they have to stay in the hospital? Are they terribly sick? Yes, to all of them. So it depends. If you have a graft failure and and you have, have no counts, you are very vulnerable to infections. So you are in the transplant unit and we do try to do a second transplant immediately at that time. So that is a little different from a relapse of a cancer. So in that case, it would be very difficult if you we could not get the graft to take. When I say that means that your bone marrow starts working again. And what about the situation when the stem cells are coming from a donor other than yourself, or you can take your own stem cells out? Okay, so that transplant basically is what we call auto-transplants okay. and allogeneic transplants. So in autos, the patients donate their own peripheral blood or bone marrow, and they get chemotherapy for whatever malignancy they have. And what it enables us to do is much give much higher doses of chemotherapy for a curative purpose, and then we rescue them with their own marrow. So there is no concern of graft failure then because, you know, it's your own marrow. You're 
body is used to it. When you're getting it from somebody else, there is a higher chance of graft rejection. So we wipe out the immune system completely mm-hmm. so that their marrow would, this new marrow would take. And that process is the hard process where you can get complications, life-threatening infections, because you don't have an immune system. And is that the allogenic kind? That's the allogenic okay. kind. And so the most common risk of a stem cell transplant, if I understand right, or one, it might not take, and you might have to do the whole process again, but mm-hmm. infection, really. Yes. Other kind of consequences? And graft-versus-host disease, which we talked about earlier, that is that can happen when you're getting a bone marrow from someone else. And so can you tell us, is stem cell transplant process different for children than it is for adults? No, it's more or less the same. It's the different variety of diseases and the age. To give you an example, we... I did a one-month-old with an immunodeficiency. And, you know, the donor was a two-year-old. My adult colleagues called me to ask me how I would do a bone marrow harvest on a two-year-old because they are used to all these big adults. So that's the difference, I think, personally. Do kids tolerate the transplant better in their body because their body is new and young and healthy and not old and aged with liver and kidney issues like ours? Absolutely. And that's why I do pediatrics because kids Mm -hmm. are very resilient. And they're cute. And they are. (laughs) And their feet don't smell. (laughs) You know, let's talk about, let's encourage people to become donors. Let's talk about that process. How does someone go about donating their stem cells? A blood donation, I understand, but a stem cell donation, I'm not quite so sure about. Okay, so what you do is uh, there are registries now all across the world, and we have the largest one here, which was formerly called National Marrow Donor Program. Now it's Be the Match. Be the Match. And anybody can join. They actually are encouraging college students to join because all a, a lot of our studies have shown that younger donors, the survival is better. Hmm. So they're doing it in cam- college campuses. Them and still, their, their stem cells are a little bit more vigorous? But more vigorous. Okay. And, and there's no exclusion criteria, meaning that if you no have exclu- a certain condition or a certain age, you can't... Yes, there is. Okay. Over 60, you can't be a donor on the registry. I think it's... Uh, So I've got a good 50 years before I don't qualify. (laughs) Oh, forever. (laughs) No, sometimes there's certain people that they don't want to do blood donation. Is it the same thing for stem cells? Uh, Whenever you join the registry, that's, you know, you get uh, HLA typing. You can do a buccal swab for that. It doesn't even have to be a blood test. But then what happens is when we are looking, it's all the databases in the computer. Once we pick up donors, they have to go through medical clearance to really be able to donate. So, And it's done under anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Just to let you know, because on the program house, they showed a donor being do- <laughs> donating without anesthesia, which I th- was, thought was really amazing. Oh, so well, it's good said, that it's painless. Yes, it's painless. <laughs> and does insurance cover that if you're the donor? Yes, it does. That's wonderful. Yes. And so once you get asked, to, how do you get asked to be a donor? Say that we, do, we swab our cheek and send that sample in and register, and somebody calls me or says, wow, Dr. Davis is the perfect match. How do they get a hold of you? They have the donor information. I mean, Be the Match is very organized, and they have the donor pool. They have contact. uh, You know, they have donor centers where the donors go. It's all very organized and so if i was donating to somebody across the country i wouldn't have to fly there and stay there i get to no. do it in the convenience of where i live and then the contents are shipped. or nearby or nearby because you have to go to a donor center yes and to donate and if it's very near where you are like to give you an example we are a donor center here so mm-hmm. the and national matter donor program 
I mean, the volunteer donors can come here to donate. Fabulous. NMDP donors. When it comes to blood donation, I know there's always some of those that are, oh, we really love you as a donor because you've got a great blood type. Is there the same sort of no. thing with stem cell? No, it's the best correlate. match. Sure. So what we do is we look, f- try to find the best match. So we pick out donors, and then we do what we call confirmatory typing to get the best match possible for our patient. So, so for those people who listening to our program who are young chicks and chickens <laughs> like those of us who are... So far from 60. So far from 60. <laughs> I won't comment about time shots at this nope. very moment. Nothing. D- can you tell us a phone number or a website where people who want to register can yeah. do that? Be the match. It's be the match.org. And uh, let's look at the future. What research is being done? What direction is this going that will help patients? Well, uh, we are trying to make it a safer procedure. Uh, Be the Match is trying to have more donors available for the patients so that, you know, patients even with difficult HLA typings can get a donor. And then I think it's, uh, it's becoming more and more curable, and our supportive care has increased so much that our survival rates are very good now. I mean, you have we have so many transplant survivors, so... But talk about paying it forward, Shaquila. I mean, registering on this and knowing that you've come to duty because you're matching someone else's blood type, you're literally saving their life. Absolutely. And actually what they do is to let you know um, they can meet. If they're from the U.S., both of them are from the U.S. because we have international donors too. Once a year has passed, they both can meet. Oh, fun. And I can tell you a fun story. So one of our patients... um, he found out his donor was very near him. They didn't even know that. And then he got married. We did his transplant when he was 18. And then he graduated from college and got married. And his donor and his wife attended his wedding. And he actually brought me photos. I have that in my office. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So, And then now he has a baby, too. So a lot <laughs> of success stories in pediatrics. Very touching. How long does it take for a donor to restock the stem cells that come out for oh, when they're a donor? Within a month. I mean, we don't, I don't think they are called to donate again, but sometimes like in graft failure, we have asked them to do it again and I've not had a donor refuse. Thanks so much, Dr. Khan, for bringing us up to date on stem cell transplantation. Dr. Shaquilla Khan is a pediatric oncologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, they're so small and you can barely see them that head lice cause a bunch of trouble, especially in my clinic. And it's perhaps the single most important thing you can do to prevent getting sick during this cold and flu season. We'll tell you what it is and how to do it the right way. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest and greatest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. It's a fact. Exercise is good for your health, and a new study shows it may also be good for teens who are being bullied. I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Many bullied teens feel sad and some consider suicide. University of Vermont researchers found exercising four or more times a week reduces bullied kids' sadness and their suicidal thoughts and attempts. 
Mayo Clinic Children's Center psychologist Dr. Bridget Biggs says this study suggests the long-known benefits of exercise might diminish the negative effects of being bullied. Bullying is any form of aggression that is repeated and usually involves a power differential. So from one kid who has more power than another kid or an adult who has more power over another adult. Now, some people really want a large TV, but it could be a danger if not secured properly, especially for kids. Toronto University researchers found thousands of TVs topple onto kids each year, causing injury and even death. And three quarters of those accidents happen when the child is not properly supervised. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Pediculosis capitis. With a name like that, you know whatever it is, it isn't good. Pediculosis capitis is the scientific name for a tiny creature that can turn the family's life upside down. We're talking about head lice. And when a head lice infestation sweeps through a classroom or a child care setting... Oh, and daycare moms hate head lice, yes. It sends parents scrambling for special shampoos to start washing every piece of clothing and bedding in the house. Here to talk about head lice and how to treat an infestation is our guest host, Mayo Clinic Dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Dr. Davis, thank you for being here, first of all. My pleasure. Now, I hate I hate it when you get that word. First, the moms start to hear, did you hear there's head lice at school? You know, it just starts to work its way around the class. And it's that time of year, except for this year, at least in Rochester, Minnesota, this head lice can't be killed. It's unstoppable. It is a zombie head lice. Is that what we're dealing with? Well, I'm a pediatrician and a dermatologist, and when I hear the L word, I still get freaked out and get itchy on my own scalp. So don't feel bad. We're all in this together. All right. So first of all, what is it about these head lice, that the kind that are out right now that can't be killed? What's happening? We're fortunate that we currently live in a small community where... Resistance to medications for head lice is low because in some major cities, most strains of head lice are resistant to the -the over-the-counter medications that are available for lice. So one thing to remember is that lice are an infestation, meaning that they're an annoyance. A lot of people think of them as a true infection, meaning that they're a germ that causes serious disease. And head lice don't cause a serious disease. They're just an infestation. They want a home, and you're a very nice, warm safe hotel. Sure. And how do they, do they just live all of the time and they just go from city to city looking for, <laughs> looking for homes? How do we never completely get rid of head lice? Yes. Well, they're an infestation, which by definition means that they've evolutionarily survived to be very good at being annoying and innocuous so that the immune system doesn't kill them. And they essentially migrate ubiquitously across the country and across the world. It just means that they're there. It's a part of life. They're here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> All right. So what are the symptoms of head lice infestation? How are you going to know? Itching. Mm-hmm. So most people, first of all, head lice prefers hair on Caucasian heads and prefers to live close to a warm area where there's a blood meal. So that means it's going to anchor on to softer hair that shaft is small enough that it can get its little prongs around on its on its arms. Think of a lobster mm-hmm. claw. And it lives within one inch of your scalp because that way it can hang it on the hair, be warm close to your head, be sheltered by all the hair that's around. And then when it gets hungry, crawl down closer to your scalp, bite the scalp, and take a blood meal, and then crawl back up an inch or so and hang out until it gets um, hungry again. Mm-hmm. And when the scalp... 
um, when the head lice bites you, that's usually not very pruritic, but what it leaves behind is a little bit of saliva that's very irritating. And so when you start to feel itching, it's usually because you've been bitten and you don't like the saliva. Kind of like when a mosquito bite bites you, you might feel the bite if it's strong enough, but what you really notice is the itching. Later on. Yes. And so most children present with scalp itch, but we all itch our scalps and scratch our scalps Everyone all the time. is right now, actually. It's, I think it's impossible to talk about head lice or listen to a conversation about it without itching your head. Yes. And people sweat <laughs> from exercise or from heat. That makes your scalp itchy. People in the dry winters and the cold, their scalp gets dry. That makes their scalp itchy and they scratch it. People wear wool clothes or hats. That makes their head itchy. Or they have a skin disease that makes their hair itchy. So there's not anybody around who hasn't had an itchy scalp and you don't necessarily have to worry that it's head lice but if you don't usually have an itchy scalp or your scalp is itching without a good explanation you should take a peek especially within the inch closest to your hair and look for what are nits or live lice oftentimes the lice are very little when they're young and they're hard to see but you can see the nits or the eggs that have been laid on the hair shaft and they like to collect behind the ears and on what's called the occiput or the back of the head because it's very warm there and it's a tight place. So look all across the scalp, but be sure to also check behind the ears and on the back near the neck where you're most likely to see them sooner. They're most communicable and easily spread through daycares, preschools, sure. and elementary school children because they like each other. They hang out. They play a lot together. And they share a lot of things. And so the louse can jump from head to head or from object to object. So I put on my hat. We all go outside in the playground. My friend is cold. I'm trying to do the good thing like my mom taught me and share my hat. I give them my hat and all of a sudden they've got head lice. So it's very common. It's less common from middle school onward simply because we don't have the same social habits as we did when we were younger. Speaking of the hat or stuffed animals or pillows or blankets, what do you have to do to all those things when there is lice in the family? Yes. Yeah, so what I'd recommend is that all family members get treated because you're likely all contaminated because you live in the same house and share the same things. I would also recommend that you wash everything that's washable with hot water and put it through the dryer so it gets heat. Things that are dry cleanable, you should put in a garbage bag or a plastic bin, take it to the dry cleaners, tell them that it's infested so that they wash it or dry it a special way and don't contaminate their sure. business. And then um, for things that you can't do that for, you can leave it in an airtight container for three to four weeks and the lice will die because they don't have a blood meal. But they can last that long? I thought it was just like 24 hours or well, something. Well, we're careful with that. And sure. you don't know what cycle and how many bugs are in that oh. thing. And so we always say three to four weeks just to be safe. Gotcha. But there is a real problem with if you want to get rid of the lice, because it is an infestation, it's not dangerous, but if you want to get rid of it, there are a lot of resistant lice in the community to the community over-the-counter drugs that are available. So yeah. a lot of people do combing and brushing to get rid of physically as much as they can, but most people use an over-the-counter rinse or shampoo on their hair. You just follow the directions. As long as the child or adult weighs over 30 pounds, they can use it. And then you must repeat it. So the medicines that are available both over the counter and by prescription only catch the louse in certain life cycle forms. And so if it's in the premature stage within the, within the egg and has not reached an embryo stage in the egg, it's not going to get the medicine. So it will be alive. It's also the last thing that will hatch. Mm. So here you've treated everybody who's in the egg or a baby or an adult. And lo and behold, if you just go, oh my gosh, thank goodness I've cleaned everything. 
everything. Well done. We've all taken the medicine. Yeah. I don't want to go through that again. It's an exhausting process. Right. If you don't go through the process of repeating the treatment at the seven to nine day window, you're not going to catch the babies that were in the egg and they're going to come out form frost and they're going to be healthy and not have anything in their way. Ready to go. And then they're just ready to go again and they multiply very quickly. So then you're back at the drawing board. So every seven to nine days, should you do that just one extra time or should you do that a third time? You should just do it an extra time. Okay. And if for some reason you still think you're contaminated after that, call your primary care doctor or dermatologist because you may have a resistant strain or might be missing some sort of piece of the puzzle where you need to get prescription medications. So the resistant strain that we hear about in the news is resistant to over-the-counter stuff that you buy, but there are some prescription that you can get that will get them. There are multiple prescription modalities that work on the louse in different ways mechanistically. And so there, I have not seen a louse that is resistant to all forms of treatment, luckily. <laughs> I want to apologize to all of the listeners who have been scratching their heads through this whole thing. It's just it's so important because if you kids or grandkids, whatever it is, I remember you saying a long time ago, it's the parents freaking out that is the biggest problem. It is, but you can't blame them for freaking <laughs> out. And I also want to make you aware that it's very uncommon is in ethnic hair to have the louse because the hair is coarse and much fatter in diameter and it's difficult for the louse to hang, hang on with its clips. So if you have ethnic hair and you think you have lice, it is likely something else sure. and you should go straight to the primary care provider or dermatologist instead of going through the rigmarole of treating yourself for lice because it's very unlikely that that's what you have. Hmm. Just because we're almost ready to get into snow time and winter time, and you mentioned winter skin being a little bit more itchy and dry, give us a refresher. What should be or should not be, more importantly, I suppose, in the lotion that we use this winter? So always remember when you there are lotions, there are creams, and there are ointments. So lotion has a little bit of cream and is mostly water-based. So it soaks in the skin very, very well. It tends to be thinner, but it evaporates off the skin very quickly. Cream has more cream and less water, so it doesn't soak in as well, but it takes much longer to evaporate. And then there are ointments, which are oil-based, which means that they mostly sit on top of the skin, which is why you feel the residue mostly. It doesn't evaporate well because it's not water-based. And the other thing it does is it acts like a greenhouse, and it allows your skin to catch up making its own moisture. And so it tends to be the most effective over time. And ointments tend not to sting because they don't contain water and mostly don't contain alcohol preservatives. So if you're raw, if you're dry, if you're itchy, if you don't mind the goo feel of the ointment, try a thin layer of ointment two to three times a day. And if not, back down to a cream, we prefer hypoallergenic, unfragranced creams or ointment. Well, thank you, Dr. Davis, for giving us tips on managing head lice and for an update on treating winter skin care problems. Dr. Don Davis is a dermatologist at Mayo Clinic and our very wonderful guest host this week. Thanks again. My pleasure, Tracy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're heading into cold and flu season and infectious disease specialists tell us the single most important thing that we all can do to reduce the risk of getting sick is to wash our hands. Tracy returns with our regular program host, Dr. Tom Shives, to talk about how to get the most out of these few seconds that we devote every day, many times a day, to hand washing. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, frequent hand washing is one of the best ways to avoid getting sick and spreading what you might have to someone else. 
And as you touch people with things throughout, <laughs> throughout the, the day, day oh my, yeah, yeah, you might, a lot of germs around. You might build germs up on your hands, and in fact, you can infect yourself with those germs by touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. Well, sure, it's basically impossible to keep your hands completely germ-free, but washing your hands frequently can, we used to say wash down back in Iowa, <laughs> oh, washing your hands frequently can help limit the spread of bacteria, viruses, and other bad bugs. So, how often should you wash your hands, and what should you wash them with? Joining us in studio is Mayo Infectious Disease Expert, Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar. Welcome back to the program. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, winter flu season is up on us, and I suppose that makes it more important than ever that we wash our hands. Yes, it does, and it's probably a good idea year-round to keep your hands as clean as possible. Um, you asked how often should you do it. There's probably not a magic number. It kind of depends on what you've been doing throughout the day. But a good common sense rule is wash uh, whenever you are before eating, uh, after using the bathroom, and after touching surfaces that may be contaminated. What are the dirtiest surfaces in people's homes? You know, probably surfaces in the kitchen. I know you weren't (laughs) expecting kitchen, but especially if you're cutting up chicken, fish, meat, etc., those can have a lot of bacteria, and those bacteria can contaminate surfaces. And it's been uh, said that the kitchen sponge, you know, that you use to clean surfaces is probably the most uh, germy yeah, it's not your toilet. House. It's your kitchen well, countertop. I shudder to think how dirty my phone must be because you take it with you everywhere and you wash your hands, but whoever washes their phone, that you never wash your phone. Right, but if your hands are reasonably clean, hopefully you didn't contaminate your phone unless you've been handing it to other people to use. Do you know, is there some good objective evidence that washing your hands frequently, particularly if you're a medical provider, uh, healthcare provider, that it will prevent disease, help prevent it? Yes. There is a lot of scientific data, studies that have been performed both in healthcare settings and in the community that show that hand hygiene or keeping your hands clean is the best way to reduce infection. So in, in healthcare, it's been well established that when healthcare workers clean their hands, infection rates in hospitals go down. And that the same has also been shown in communities when uh, Children are encouraged to wash their hands. Uh, Illnesses and absenteeism in schools goes down. Um, The risk of getting diarrhea, the risk of getting respiratory infections are reduced by approximately 30%. How is it that you're supposed to wash your hands best? I know the happy birthday song, you know, you see that poster. Or what's the best way to go about it and how long should you do it? So you could either use um, these alcohol-based hand rubs, which are a lot simpler and easier to use than finding a sink and soap and water. And the alcohol-based gels work just as well as soap and water, provided your hands aren't visibly dirty. So if you have, you've been gardening, or if you have, your hands are really greasy, or or you've touched a surface that was uh, really not very clean, and you have visible dirt on your hands, then you do need soap and water. For most other situations, Situations, the um, alcohol gels work really well. The alcohol gels, you need to put about a quarter-sized amount on your hand and work it in and cover all the surfaces. And to get your hands clean will take about 15 to 20 seconds. And the alcohol, when it's dry, you know your hands are clean. 
So how about uh, we're, if we're talking about soap? And I sort of like the sink in a, in a bar of soap. That that you know the alcohol <laughs> stuff is okay, but it sort of leaves this kind of filmy stuff on your on your hands. But anyway, I'm glad to hear that it that it works. Antibacterial so that filmy stuff might actually be a good thing. So it yeah, is does cool. leave a little bit of alcohol residue, and that might have a effect even after you've finished washing your hands. So that's a plus actually. And the other thing is the alcohol gels have a lot of moisturizer added to them, which is mostly what you're feeling on your hands. So they're gentler on your hands. And in, in the healthcare industry where you have to wash your hands 20, 30 times a day, it's definitely much kinder to your hands to use. But what you about... know that there's a little cream in there, a little uh, lotion? Uh, well, I've seen... That's what I was going to say. I've seen some that have lotion in them, but mm. I've also seen the antibacterial ones... And that's the kind that we don't want to use anymore, correct? So most alcohol gels are about 70% alcohol, and then the rest is added moisturizers. They're not typically the ones that have the antibacterial. They are antibacterial because they kill bacteria, but they don't have the added antibacterial. Um, Something that has been um, rather controversial is the antibacterial soaps that you can buy. Uh, They usually have an ingredient called triclosan. And it's interesting that this does reduce bacteria to on your hands to a greater extent than just regular soap and water. But there have never been any studies showing that the um, triclosan reduces infection risk further. So if you hmm. wash your hands with regular soap and water, it's about as good as washing with antibacterial soap. And the antibacterial soap hasn't been studied as much, and there are now uh, studies showing that there may be more risks than benefits associated with it. So the triclosan can get into our water systems even after our sewage is treated, and uh, it actually gets converted into something called dioxin, which hurts um, algae in the water. Dr. Shives, your whole bar of soap thing is probably the way to go. I know, and I'm not paying up for that antibacterial stuff, I can tell you that. (laughs) Hey, when you are um, going into surgery, how long do you wash your hands? You have to have a whole routine that you've been doing for years. I saw one of our producers said, why don't you tell them how you scrub for surgery? You know what? I've done it so many times I can't even remember. You just sort of do it by memory. And, and it's no different than, I mean, we have a, a sponge, and I guess you go in between your uh, fingers. But I thought about it for a second, and I said, you know, I don't even think about how I do it anymore. <laughs> but they're pretty clean when they go in there. But then you got the gloves on top of that. Sure. So, Very good. And a yeah. surgical scrub is different from what yeah. most people need to do. When it comes to making my uh, sandwich or my burrito, I would love for them to be surgical surgically scrubbed clean. That would be a benefit to me. Hey, you know, we got a, what, a minute left, uh, an update on the flu season. First of all, time to get your flu shot, right? Yes. Most um, area pharmacies should have the flu shot coming in. And, uh, you know, the recommendation is that everyone should get a flu shot, everyone over the age of six months. Everyone. Everyone. And how about the nasal stuff? That works pretty well, right? Whether That does work pretty well. There's some restrictions on who can get it. You have to be under the age of uh, 50. You have to be healthy. Otherwise, you have you can't be pregnant. And you think it's going to be a bad season, or do you have any inkling yet? The one thing about the flu season is that it's always unpredictable. Uh, right. right. Infectious oh. disease specialist, Dr. Priya Sampath-Gumar, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.